Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 7. Well, how many times have I told this story? I've told it so many times because I have to remember it so many times in my work. It's the story of Hermes, who was the messenger of the gods, brought messages back and forth between the realm of the deities and the realm of humans. Hermes, right after he was uh, born, committed his first felony, uh, was a thief and a liar, and uh, Zeus chose him to be his messenger with some hesitation because he was uh, his credibility was questionable, and he had a little heart-to-heart talk with Hermes, and he said, I, I like your voice, you're very quick, and... Um, you seem to get you. You seem to be good at getting what you want to happen to happen. So maybe I'd like to have you as a messenger, but I'm not sure that you um, will tell the truth. And Hermes' response to Zeus was, "I may tell them the truth, or I may tell them lies, but I promise you, they will get the message." <laughs> and and uh, so it's in the spirit of Hermes that I do a lot of the things that I do. Uh, and I thought about this this week because I would like to propose to propose that uh, as we look at Cantos 14, 15, and 16, we entertain a fiction. Now, if I was really trying to cover my tracks and be uh, and fend off any criticism, I would go into elaborate defense of this fiction and try to prove that maybe it wasn't total. It isn't totally a fiction. Uh, but we, I don't want to take time to do that. I'll just uh, con- cons- I'll just call it a fiction. And the fiction would be this, that in the middle of this poem, uh, either because it was time for it in terms of Dante's, uh, the architectural structure of his larger poem, or because it actually happened, the poem and the poet run out of steam. Uh, we might think of the poem now as we might personify the poem. The poem uh, takes on uh, its own dimensions. Uh, and we see something, I'm, I'm suggesting that we, we uh, hold this fiction in our minds as an interpretive tool today. What happens is that the poem hits a snag, that uh, the poem and the poet have exhausted their available sources of creative tension. And the poem and the poet begin to try to find a way out of that poetic bankruptcy. And because the poem is Dante's prayer wheel, the poem is Dante's uh, uh, commitment, he tries to uh, look for a way out of this wasteland by writing the poem on, uh, by, as Jung said, dreaming the dream on, as a way of trying to come to some terms with what the problem is. And I would suggest that maybe the problem is that the, as I said, the available uh, creative tension has been exhausted. And if we think of the energy of... uh, a spiritual existence, whether it's the energy of personal life 
the energy of a work of art, the energy of a cultural enterprise. <coughs> it's, I think it's helpful to see it as the grappling with a creative tension. And the enterprise uh, arrests itself or, or, or bogs down when that tension has been resolved or when those two uh, elements in the tension have split apart and polarized and, and so no longer are in this, in this uh, dance with each other, or because they have fallen in uh, and commingled and confused with one another so that there's not enough tension. So there's, it's, it's, it's as though these two elements, whatever they might be, in a particular, at a, during a particular period or in, a, or in a particular person's life or cultural life or artistic endeavor or whatever, these two things need to be close enough to feel their attraction and far enough apart to feel their contention. And then you have the engine of creative life. And I would, I, the, the, the fiction for today is that Dante and his poem have exhausted the available sources of that and begin to explore for alternatives. <coughs> now, the two things, as I just said, that the, the, the two uh, dangers here <coughs> is that these two things that are in tension will split or bifurcate and become simply polar and antagonistic, uh, unaware of their commonality. And the other thing is that they will, uh, Martin Buber calls it absorption, that they will dissolve into one another and become unaware of their, of their tension and contention with each other. And so the energy is lost. Well, Dante, like most of us, begins by resorting to earlier uh, sources of creative tension to see if they still have any energy in them. And he goes down the list, and they don't. And he's left uh, not knowing what to do. In a similar time in the life of uh, Wallace Stevens, uh, Helen Vendler wrote a little study of Stevens' poetry. She said, Stevens, it is part of his greatness, was quick to see when he was being false. And in spite of the immense stubbornness of his slow nature, was willing to force himself unwillingly onto the next stage of discovery, even if it meant new desolation. He was willing to force himself even unwillingly. You see, the source of creative tension has gone inside him now. It is that part of him which is willing and that part of him which is unwilling struggling with each other about moving into this next phase. We're almost exactly in the middle of the inferno. For all intents and purposes, we are in the middle of the inferno. Where And, and it's if we think of the inferno as, uh, as uh, a... Uh, standing on its own, as opposed to being the first third of a larger poem, then it's in the middle of these large poems that the great crisis often happens. It's in the middle of the Aeneid that the crisis happens for Aeneas. So imagine now the poem and the poet searching for new motives 
we could think of them as new motives, new motivational forces, new reasons for writing the poem, and new insight about what it ultimately means. Well, we've got more than we can do this morning, and I've, I'm really adding to the problem. Uh, I want What I'd like to do is compare, as we go along, Cantos 14, 15, and 16, with the fourth uh, of T.S. Eliot's four quartets, Little Gidding. Uh, the comparison suggests itself because uh, Eliot refers, I think, pretty unmistakably in Little Gidding to this section of the, of the Inferno. Uh, but also, I think we could, have, uh, taking a few liberties, I, can, I think we can imagine Eliot articulating in Little Gidding the same kind of dilemma and trying to wrestle with it. So uh, I, as we go along, I want to compare the two poems, have them speak to each other. Little Gidding begins... Midwinter spring is its own season. Uh, it's midway, and it's neither this nor that. Let me come back to that. I just, uh, I'm really compounding things. And there's a passage in a Robert Frost poem, Two Tramps in Mudtime, where he talks about this same time of year. By the way, we're right on the verge of spring, but it has been this last week that kind of a You'll get it from this Eliot poem. It's been this kind of weather where we live. Um, Frost says, The sun was warm, but the wind was chill. You know how it is with an April day when the sun is out and the wind is still. You're one month on in the middle of May. But if you so much as dare to speak, a cloud comes over the sunlit arch. A wind comes off a frozen peak, and you're two months back in the middle of March. That's what that's the way it's been. This, but Frost is not talking about climate, and of course neither is Eliot. When Frost says, "But if you so much as dare to speak," you know that he's talking about his art, poetry. And there is something about trying to render it into words that throws you back into a colder time. And then the wind comes off the frozen peak, and you've gone back. And that's the dilemma, you see. And that's the dilemma that Dante and, and, and uh, Eliot are grappling with, the problem of language, the problem of poetry, and uh, the problem of finding the source of creative tension with which to pursue those things. And we, of course, can... We, we're not, we don't all gather here to become poets or whatever, but whatever there is for each of us a psychological analog to this same problem. Midwinter spring is its own season, sent paternal though sodden towards sundown, suspended in time between pole and tropic. Again, you get that halfway point. Between pole and must always, without particularly with Eliot, take all these words that every every the dictionary has twelve meanings. So there's twelve meanings in that word between pole and tropic. When the short day is brightest with frost and fire, the brief sun flames the ice. Now there, look at those two: ice 
and fire, ice and fire, but just sitting there contradicting each other. No, simply there at the beginning of the poem. By the way, I, as you know, Little Gidding's a long poem, and so is the Inferno. So I'm not, we could we could explore these things at great length, but I, I'm going to try to move on. Eliot at least notes the 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 poles of the creative dilemma in Ice and Fire, which are very prominent in Eliot's poetry. In Dante's poem, back meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, Canto 14, Dante and Virgil come upon a great flat plain. We came upon an open plain that banishes all green things from its bed. It was sandy, parched, barren, sterile desert, relieved only by a little shallow rivulet of blood. Nothing. Barren. I think the scene here is, the, the important thing to get about this is that we're, the scene is depicting sterility and barrenness that banishes all green things from its bed. Eliot says, no wind but Pentecostal fire. I want to come back to that. No wind, Greek word panuma means spirit, but Pentecostal fire. The fire is there, but it is not ensouled. It is not inspired because there's no wind. There's no breath. There's no spirit. In the dark time of the year between the melting and freezing, the soul's sap quivers. There is no earth smell or smell of living thing. I think that's a, uh, that's a strict parallel to Dante's an open plain that banishes all green things from its bed, says Dante. Eliot says, there is no earth smell or smell of living thing. Barren. Eliot says, not in the scheme of generation. Nothing growing, producing, giving birth, dying. Not, that's not happening. Where, Eliot says, where is the summer, the unimaginable Zero summer. And I think that's his first reference in the poem to that paradoxical breakthrough where these two things, fire and ice, uh, open up and become creative. Where is the summer, the unimaginable zero summer? <laughs> Meanwhile, he's back in this place where the ice and the fire are just contradicting each other. We're, we're taking the tour with Dante, but we're, we're, getting, we're, we're reading <coughs> Eliot's program. If you come this way, taking the route you would be likely to take from the place you would be likely to come from, if you come at night like a broken king, if you come by day not knowing what you came for, it would be the same when you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning. 
Imagine Dante coming upon that experience. If you came at night like a broken king, if you came by day not knowing what you came for, it would be the same when you leave the rough road and turn behind the pigsty to the dull facade and the tombstone. And what you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning. Now, Don, uh, Elliot is talking about Little Gidding, which is a little, a little village in England where there was a little chapel, which in the 17th century was used for, uh, was a, the center of contemplative life for uh, pious Anglicans, a small group of pious Anglicans. And Eliot has gone there to get away from the consensus reality which he has perceived to be a desert. And he is hoping in the little chapel that's now, uh, that now you have to root around to find in this village. He's hoping that little cha chapel uh, to find a way off of the barren plain. And Dante says it was of sand, there was nothing to relieve it except a little river of blood, and there on it were these naked souls, and there are three groups of them. There are those blasphemers lying flat on their backs. There are those huddled in a group, they are the usurers, and then there are the, lar the largest group, those who moved about incessantly and they are the sodomites. And Dante is now going to explore this plane, as Eliot does his barren plane, to try to find the door to get to another place, to try to resolve the problem that he has run out of creative energy. And Perhaps this is where Don, uh, Eliot gets some of his imagery. Above that plain of sand, distended flakes of fire showered down. Their fall was slow as snow descends on Alps when no wind blows. Notice, the fire is like snow and no wind blows. Fire is like snow and no wind blows. I think the key to understanding this and then we will be helped by Tom Phillips, who not only translated but illustrated the Inferno. And for those listening on tapes, I'm sorry about this, but it's all we can do. Here is his rendition of that. It just it's it's not doesn't have the psychological depth, perhaps that the, that those uh, Barry Mosier ink washes do. But the reason I want to show it to you is because. I think what's being depicted here, above the plain of sand, distended flakes of fire showered down their fall was slow as snow descends on Alps when no wind blows. I think what is happening is that we are observing Pentecostal fire that is not having a Pentecostal effect. I asserted earlier on that heaven and hell are the same place, experienced uh, by two different conscious states of consciousness. Uh, Pentecostal fire and hellfire are the same fire. And those who uh, receive it and feel the wind, the panuma, the spirit of it, get turned around. And those who anneal themselves to it 
experience it as torture. So I think the, the uh, Tom Phillips thing is, is helpful. Okay. So now we begin what, in some ways, is, is a little bit like Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, uh, at least poetically. It is Dante trying to find a way uh, to resolve this problem of his, which is the creative loss of creative tension. Halfway through the Inferno, not quite, but, but for all intents and purposes, we may be having a parallel to that first canto in which Dante tried to get up the little hill and was chased back down by three beasts. Now he's trying to get off the flat plain. And he is going to be forced back at every turn. He looks at the, this group of souls and he sees, he notices, line 40, the dance of wretched hands was never done. Now here, now there, they tried to beat aside the fresh flames as they fell. So you get this. Now imagine they're doing that in response to the, to the indwelling fire of Pentecost. And that response makes it hell. See? That's the difference between the transformation and hell. Trying to brush it off. Shake it off, as we say. Try to keep it from penetrating. And that's what makes it torture. And Dante says... Who is that giant there? And he's lying flat. He's, he's a blasphemer. Who is that giant there who does not seem to heed the singeing? He who lies and scorns and scowls. He whom the rains don't seem to soften. Notice again, the rain... You get the sense of something that can bring to life, something that is generative, and it is not working on this character. The word that is translated here, soften, is maturi, which means to mature or to ripen. And these rains are coming down. Implication is that their purpose is to bring about their cosmic purpose. This is a slightly moving away from Dante, but I think it's all the implications are here. The cosmic purpose of the Pentecostal fire is to bring about that spiritual maturation. As you know, in the Christian symbol system, uh, Pentecost was the, was the moment when all of that Christic business began to end well. It was a very important moment in the maturing of their realization of what was going on. So it is a maturing crisis, a crisis of maturation. And Dante notes that this sprawled giant is the flames of fire falling on him, but to no effect, bringing no ripening or no maturing. Nothing is coming of it. And he hears Dante ask Virgil about him, and he bellows out, 
that which I was in life, I am in death. And that is, in this respect, he is the personification of hell. You see, not even death, as I said last week, death was, was, was God's best shot at getting us pride loose from the ego. And not even death worked. That which I was in life, I am in death. That's hell. The refusal to budge. And the Pentecostal fire, the very thing that could have brought about that maturi, that ripening, is falling all around him. And he simply will not be open to it. The only sin that's the only unforgivable sin is the sin against the Holy Spirit, because there's no nothing there available for transformation. Well, Virgil snaps back at this man's name is Capanius. Figure out a pagan uh, mythology. Uh, Virgil snaps back at him. By the way, he is blaspheming Jove, a pagan god. Uh, so he's in hell for blaspheming, even though he's blaspheming a pre-Christian deity. There are several reasons I think Dante has it be that way, but one is that it is for us to understand that it is not a... This man's not in hell because of some little theological technicality. Uh, he's in hell because of the mindset, the... the, the, the uh, the way of being that has produced that is at the source of this blasphemy, which is the refusal to be open to something breaking in from another realm. And Virgil says to him, "No torturer other than your own madness could offer pain enough to match your wrath." Well, that's exactly hell. The pain, one sir, in in the mythological terms, the pain of hell is self-inflicted. So Copanius, at the beginning of Dante's searches through this uh, barren track of land, is the personification of it, I think. He is the personification of the sterility and barrenness uh, of refusing uh, to try, to, refusing to open to new possibilities. And Dante, who has run out of, I think, the poem and the poet has run out of the source of creative tension. Once he meets Capanius, he knows that he must continue to try to find it. Question he has is how does he get the poetic engine started again? Where is the fuel for the poem and for his life? By the way, Dante, who was exiled and and uh, going from here and there, from this this uh, patron's temporary uh, patronage to another, and whatever, uh, undoubtedly had moments of he was there was a price on his head. He was he was a criminal, and uh, he wasn't writing this poem uh, for people in Paris. He was writing it for people in Florence, and uh, there must have been times when he thought, "Hey, why bother?" Why bother? Maybe there's something else I could do. 
And this may correspond to one of those times. One of the ways that we can relate to this is that is that instinctively Dante revisits his old formulas for getting the thing going, getting the poem going, getting himself going. And usually when we hit those places that are like this, we think, well, maybe, let's see, maybe I should have been a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) If we think of that, if we maintain that fiction about what's happening here, he sees the river of Phlegeson, now it's just a little trickle, river of blood, and he asks Virgil about the rivers of hell, uh, which are not technically rivers, they're sort of circular, well, they're circular ponds in a way. And Virgil tells him the story. In a devastated land, lie, a devastated land lies in mid-sea, a land that is called Crete. Now, Crete is kind of the pagan Garden of Eden. Uh, it's where so much of the pagan uh, deities uh, arose, uh, and some of their first contentions took place. Under its king, the world once lived chastely, but it's withered now like an old thing, and so on. And, and there, within the mountain, is a huge old man, and his back is to the east, and his face is to Rome or the west. And the old man's head is made of gold and silver form his arms and chest, and he is made of brass down to the cleft. Below that point, he is of choicest iron, except his right foot, made of baked clay, and he rests more on that than on the left. Well, this is taken from largely from two sources. One is Ovid. Ovid's uh, Metamorphoses begins by uh, referring to human history as a history of decline. And this is a universal archetype. Uh, things began in the Golden Age, degenerated into silver, bronze, and iron. Iron called the Kali Yuga in the Eastern tradition. This idea, the, so- the psychological source of this idea is all of, all of us were blissful when we were still in the womb and and and, and uh, in the mother's at the mother's breast, and so it's very easy to convince us imaginatively of a golden age, from which we have all uh, fallen. So it's the source of that that mythological archetype is psychologically understandable, and that's Ovid. The other source for Dante is the, the apocalyptic uh, uh, Old Testament book, the Book of Daniel. And in it, I'll just read this passage, it's relevant. Daniel is uh, relating a vision of King Nebuchadnezzar, and then he's going to interpret it. And he says this, You have had a vision, O king. This is what you saw, a statue, a great statue of extreme brightness stood before you, terrible to see. The head of the statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet part iron, part earthenware. See, our translation is baked clay. While you were gazing... A stone broke away, untouched by any hand, and struck the statue, struck its feet, struck its feet of iron and earthenware, bronze, gold, silver, all broke into small pieces as fine as chaff on the threshing floor in summer. The wind blew them away, leaving not a trace behind. And then he goes on to say, your your, uh, reign will be a golden one, and then it will degenerate, and finally it will be destroyed. The author of Daniel is talking about the author of Daniel is writing after the destruction of the kingdom, but he has predated his poem, so it appears to be a prophecy 
which is a technique used in some of the apocalyptic writing. Uh, but the point is that the and, and then when Christian apocalyptics got a hold of this idea, it was that the whole his, the whole of the historical uh, thrust is essentially flawed. And whatever it may seem on the surface, it is fundamentally only going to be altered by an apocalyptic, uh, divine, divinely initiated breakthrough. That with its own resources, it simply cannot proceed. It will ge- degenerate until the next divine breakthrough. Well, this is interesting for Dante because you imagine now Dante is asking, is looking for a reason to continue to write his poem. One of the reasons would be history. And he gets this picture of history, which is, it's running downhill. And to make matters even worse, Virgil goes on, still speaking of the statue that goes from gold to earthenware, each part of him except the gold is cracked. And down that fissure there are tears that drip when gathered they pierce through the cavern's floor and crossing rocks into this valley form the Acheron and Styx and Phlegathon. And then they make their way down this tight channel and at the point past which there's no descent they form Cositus. Cositus is the frozen lake at the pit of hell. The last of the four rivers. So the picture is of history, the archetypal image of history, with the descent from gold to iron and earthenware, and then Dante adds this Dantean touch that except for the gold, it's all cracked. And one gets the sense that the, that, that the fissure is the source of the tears running down the golden face and down through the crevice and into hell, forming the rivers of hell. The history, quote-unquote, history is the history of a fissured reality, of a fractured reality. The history is a fracture, that the dynamics that keep history going are the dynamics of dualism, and that it is, because of that, a conditional reality. It is a provisional reality. There's a a striking similarity. I'll just draw your attention quickly to it. In Moby Dick, uh, Ahab is a, in, in many ways, the personification of a particularly vicious version of, hi- of the historical dynamic. And here's what Ishmael says about Ahab as he stands up on the deck. Trending its way out from among his gray hairs and continuing right down one side of his tawny scorched face and neck till it disappeared in his clothing, you saw a slender rod-like mark, lividly whitish. It resembled that perpendicular seam sometimes made in the straight, lofty trunk of a great tree when the upper lightning tearingly darts down it and without wrenching a single twig peels and grooves out the bark from top to bottom, air running off into the soil, leaving the tree still greenly alive but branded. Ahab is such a fissured man, and he is the personification of history, which is a fissured undertaking a fractured thing. And this is very sobering for somebody who is looking for a reason to go on writing his poem, if I may continue my fiction. It's very sobering to find out that history is not enough of a reason. 
And so Dante says, how about the river of Lethe? I, this, has a, this has some mildly comic aspects. The river of Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. This is like Dante learning that history is not a good enough reason. And his next question is, do you have anything to drink? How about a couple of good, strong drinks from the river of Lethe? Maybe then I could get my poem underway. What do you have up there in the cabinet? See? And Virgil says, no, it's not time for Lethe. You can't get <laughs> off. You can't get off of this sterile plane that way. Lethe will come at the, at the top of the purgatorial mountain, but you can't get off of it that easily. At Canto 15, they move on to where the sodomites are. Now, the sodomites are moving about all the time. The sodomites are always uh, on the strip. They're always what do we say, uh, cruising. And they are walking around, and Dante and Virgil come to them. It says, We came on a company of spirits who made their way along the bank, and each stared steadily at us as in the dusk beneath the new moon men look at each other. That's weak compared to uh, Mark Musa's translation, which is closer to the original, I think. Mark Musa says, They looked us up and down, as some men look at other men at night when the moon is new. Then you get more the sexual innuendo of the passage. This group of sodomites came over and began to give Virgil and Dante the eye. Now we need to take, we need, I don't want to uh, subvert Dante's poem and I was going to say Dante's morality. Dante doesn't particularly seem to be morally outraged or repulsed by this uh, realm of hell. As a matter of fact, uh, hardly anybody in hell gets as much sympathy from Dante as the Sodomites. Uh, he doesn't seem to be repulsed by their sin. Uh, at least Dante the pilgrim doesn't seem to be repulsed by their sin. Well, Dante the poet may be another matter. But for our purposes, lest we slip into an easy moral position about this, uh, I don't want, by the way, I don't want to weasel out of, a, of some tough moral questions either, but uh, I think if we took the question a little bit deeper, we might find that the sodomite issue is an issue for us too. And that is, if we think of sodomy in the psychological sense, it seems to me uh, that the issue for Dante is the barrenness. The reason it was finally universally condemned was because it was fruitless. It was barren in the, in the strict biological reproductive sense, and that was why it was condemned. Not because it was... A, no, no, and not because of what somebody might do in the privacy of the bedroom, but because it was... And the understanding of sexuality at that point was that it had only one function, had only one function, <laughs> and that was reproduction. 
and so therefore homosexuality is condemned. Like all the things in Dante, when he takes hold of them, he'll provide some interesting things for us, and he, he will when we meet this character here in a second. But let's imagine psychological sodomy. It seems to me there'll be two versions of it. One is the refusal to differentiate the sexual aspects. The willing uh, determination to remain in that what Freud called polymorphously perverse uh, childhood place in which the uh, in which I have not I, I have not uh, manifested one of the sexual uh, aspects. In other words, to refuse to distinguish them. And the second one would be the refusal to reintegrate them. The second version of psychological sodomy would be to having chose the masculine one to try to uh, to insist on living my life solely in terms of that one without any attempt to integrate the feminine. That's psychological sodomy. That's psychological homosexuality. William Butler Yeats said, uh, nothing can be soul or whole until it has first been rent. Well, let's, uh, let me proceed here. So they come, they come sort of leeringly around them. They knit their brows and squinted at us just as an old tailor at his needle's eye. An interesting little simile. I was recognized by one who took me by the hem and cried out, this is marvelous. I fixed my eyes upon his... I want you to remember some of these phrases because they reappear in Eliot. That spirit having stretched his arms toward me, I fixed my eyes upon his baked brown features so that the scorching of his face could not prevent my mind from recognizing him and lowering my face to meet his face. I answered him, Are you here, Sir Brunetto? Are you here? Now, Brunetto Latini... Uh, Dante refers to him as his master or his teacher. A uh, lot of confusion about that. He probably was too important and prominent a man. He died in, when Dante was in his late 20s. He's probably too important a man to have been Dante's literal tutor, uh, but a man of, uh, of importance uh, in Florence. Tremendously uh, cultured, civilized, uh, learned, a uh, man who played a, a role, a major role in in the arts and in literature and in politics, and one of those sort of Renaissance men. And uh, he had been for Dante apparently in Dante's uh, early years a tremendous source of inspiration about what a person ought to be. And now he meets him uh, among the Sodomites. He wants to stop a while and talk. He's very um, reverent, as Virgil tells him to be in this area of hell. And he says, let's rest a while. And, and uh, Renato says, 
Whoever of this flock stops but a moment stays a hundred years and cannot shield himself when fire strikes. The uh, problem here is still the refusal uh, to submit to the Pentecostal fire, I think. But th there's also a connection here between Canto 15 and Canto 5 where the lustful were being punished. The lustful were constantly swirling in the air and these sodomites are constantly on the move on the sand. Uh, so it's that same kind of being driven by an obsession. And Dante's very reverent. And then Brunetto prophesies Dante's own success as a poet and the decline and decadence of Florence. In T.S. Eliot's poem, he says, And what the dead had no speech for when living they can tell you being dead. The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. So he could speak like the Holy Spirit. He could be that tongue of fire, that communicate uh, some message that would be Holy Spirit-like, uh, even though he himself did not avail himself of it. And that's what Dante is learning, and I think that's what, that's what Eliot has seen in Dante's story, that even though Brunetto refused the Holy Spirit, what Dante learned from Brunetto was filled with the Holy Spirit. Wordsworth said what's foolishly spoken can be wisely heard. It's not quite parallel to what happens here, but uh, he has learned from Brunetto. And one of the things, again, if, if you imagine Dante looking around for where to find the energy, one of the things Brunetto tells him is, at the top of page 137, one party and the other will be hungry for you, but keep the grass far from the goat. The parties. Don't get into parties party politics. Don't, t t if, you, if you have run out of the creative tension, and Dante had been in party politics uh, for a good while, actively and deeply involved in party politics, and Brunetto is saying, there's no going back to that. The poem is saying, if you will, uh, what Dante is discovering in his temptations in this particular wilderness is that you can't go back to that to try to revive that as a source of creative tension. Don't return to the parties. What T.S. Eliot says, which is, echoes this, is, and this is again in Little Gidding, we cannot revive old factions, we cannot restore old policies, or follow an antique drum. These men and those who oppose them and those whom they opposed accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single party. It's all over. Those two parties are the same party. You can't get it there anymore. You can't return to that anymore. A little later on, Eliot continues, there are three conditions which often look alike yet differ completely, flourish in the same hedgerow, attachment to self and to things and to persons. 
detachment from self and from things and from persons, and growing between them indifference, which resembles the others as death resembles life. Uh, Eliot is a, a writes with great precision, philosophical insight in his poetry. Detachment and attachment and this other thing which is indifference. And it's particularly uh, suspect because it often tries to pass itself off as detachment. It's not. And then he says, this is the use of memory for liberation, not less of love. He's talking about detachment. Not less of love but expanding of love beyond desire. And so liberation from the future as well as the past. And this is just what's happening to Dante. Liberation from the future as well as the past. Dante is trying to conjure the future as a reason for continuing to write his poem. And I think Brunetto Latini stands for culture. He found when he saw the old man of Crete that history is not a good enough reason. What might be another reason? For Dante to write a poem? For you and I to do whatever we are doing? Why? And, and this, of course, was an enormous uh, thing in Eliot's life because he had such a commitment to the cultural enterprise. But I think Eliot, too, realizes that culture is not enough. You must be liberated from the future as well as the past. Herbert Reed wrote a book called The Hell with Culture. Well, that's interesting because right after this, Dante says to, to Brunetto Latini, Within my memory is fixed and now moves me your dear, your kind, paternal image, when in the world above from time to time you taught me how man makes himself eternal. Now, that's, that's uh, dangerously close to an immortality project that we talked about last week. But I think what's happening here is there's two, two people, the poet Dante and the pilgrim Dante. We will find out later on that it was not Brunello Latini that, that made Dante eternal in any fundamental sense. It was Beatrice. And Beatrice is the feminine Christ. What Brunello Latini taught the... the taught Dante, and now this is the pilgrim Dante, is he taught him poetic allegory. Uh, Brunetto's work was, uh, was allegorical uh, in important ways and, uh, and became a model for Dante in that regard. Allegory in this sense that you might say that what Brunetto taught Dante is every time you write, Write it so that it has meaning to those who know the surface events and also that it, that it sounds deeper archetypal themes so that those who come later and who do not, are not familiar with the surface events will, will hear the deeper implications of it. And that's, I think, the allegory, the allegorical form that Dante here says, uh, taught him how to make himself eternal. That is to say, his poem would be relevant not just to the Florentines of his time, but to people 
from now on because he's not only exploring f the Florentine funny business, but he's exploring the whole human dilemma at the same time by the use of allegory. So when he says here, when, when Dante the Pilgrim says, you taught me how a man makes himself eternal, I think what he's saying is, you taught me how to leave a cultural artifact that has a reasonably good chance of surviving. It's that kind of uh, survival that he's referring to in terms of Brunetto. It's Beatrice who taught him to how to be eternal in another way. So Dante has learned <coughs> how to create cultural artifacts from this man. And now he's finding out that he's in hell. This man who spent his life uh, uh, contributing to the cultural enterprise is in hell. If history is personified as the old man of Crete, culture is personified in Brunetto Latini. He spent his life contributing to culture. And look where he is. It's not enough. And that is underscored at the very end, a very fascinating image here. When they part, it's very touching parting of Dante and Brunetto. They, this, they will never see each other again. This is for all eternity, their parting. And then he turned and seemed like one of those who race across the fields to win the green cloth at Verona of those runners, he appeared to be the winner, not the loser. Now, again, Tom Phillips has an image here I want to just hold up for you because I think it's... Same dashing way, and then you can see that little green splotch up there in the corner. That's the green claw. There was a foot race at Verona where well-oiled and naked men would run once a year, and the winner would win this green banner. What uh, Tom Phillips has, has written on his image here is document one little eye on paper still lives, my little treasure, all we selves in the wood. And uh, I get a sense of him seeing Brunetto as the one who has created a cultural artifact. Document. One little eye on paper still lives. My little treasure. It's not enough. It's not enough. And... I think what's being depicted is that this is that seen from the dimension that now Dante is entering, the cultural enterprise is simply a foot race at Verona. And those who win get the green cloth. But remember where we are in hell. We're at a place where no green thing lives. This is Dante's great and magnificent version of pave it and paint it green. No green thing lives 
and the attempt to try to revive energy by imagining a cultural enterprise uh, is simply a foot race at Verona for which you get a little green piece of cloth as a token of the greenness that is not really there. It's not enough. It won't get you off the barren plain. Well, I want to turn to uh, uh, section two of uh, Eliot's Little Gidding. And this is the section in Little Gidding which most uh, clearly parallels this place in the Inferno. Ash on an old man's sleeve. I just want you now to remember where we started with the flames coming down and then brushing them off like this. And Eliot is so wonderful the way he brings that into the contemporary uh, sensibility. Ash on an old man's sleeve is all the ash the burnt roses leave. Why don't you wish you could write like that? <laughs> ash on the old man's sleeve is all the ash the burnt roses leave. Dust in the air suspended marks the place where the story ended. Dust inbreathed was a house, the wall, the wainscot, and the mouse, the death of hope and despair. This is the death of air. There were flood and drought over the eyes and in the mouth, dead water and dead sand contending for the upper hand. Again, it's that same place in hell, you see. Dead water and dead sand contending for the upper hand. The parched, eviscerate soil gapes at the vanity of toil. Now, I think that's Eliot's take on what's happening with Dante here. Is, is history a good enough reason? Is culture a good enough reason? Is politics a good enough reason? The parched, eviscerate soil gapes at the vanity of toil, laughs without mirth. This is the death of earth. So it's two out of four, air and earth, and then he lumps the next two together. Water and fire succeed the town, the pasture, and the weed. Water and fire deride the sacrifice that we denied. Water and fire shall rot the marred foundations we forgot of sanctuary and choir. This is the death of water and fire. So the four elements died. That's it. And then Eliot switches into Tercerima, which is Dante's rhyme scheme. And he concludes... I won't go to all the, rhyme, all the lines. In the uncertain hour before the morning, near the ending of interminable night, at the recurring, at the recurrent end of the unending, after the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing. Elliot was a fire spotter in World War II in London, and what he is connecting with the this fire raining down and being brushed off. What he's connecting with that is an air raid on London and the planes coming in and dropping bombs. After the dark dove, the dark dove, see the Holy Spirit 
the Pentecostal fire that is now hellfire, the dark dove, with the flickering tongue, instead of tongues of fire, flickering tongue. After the dark dove with the flickering tongue had passed below the horizon of his homing, while the dead leaves still rattled on like tin over the asphalt where no other sand was, between three districts whence the smoke arose, I met one walking. Loitering and hurried as if blown towards me like the metal leaves before the urban dawn, wind unresisting, and as I fixed upon the downturned face that pointed scrutiny with which we challenged the first met stranger in the waning dusk, remember the time of day, in dusk when people look at one another in a funny way, I caught the sudden look of some dead master, Dante and Brunetto, whom I had known, forgotten, half recalled, both one and many, and the brown-baked features, that's what Dante said about Brunetto, the eyes of a familiar compound ghost, both intimate and unidentifiable. For, for Eliot, it is the compound ghost. It is not one teacher, one personification of the poetic uh, uh, life, but for Eliot, it is a composite of all of those poets that have, in, that have informed him, that have been master to him. So I assumed a double part, and now he splits, and cried and heard another's voice cry. So now the voice speaking and the voice hearing, is, it's all happening inside Eliot. I cried and heard another voice cry, What? Are you here? although we were not. I was still the same, knowing myself yet being someone other, and he a face still forming. We trod the pavement in a dead patrol. He asked the compound ghost to help him, and the ghost says, and this is the crux of the problem for Elliot, for Dante, for all of us when we reach that place, Last season's fruit is eaten, and the full-fed beast shall kick the empty pail. Last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice. Now that is the problem expressed in terms of the poetic career. But we could, I think we could all express it in terms of whatever the same problem. And then the compound ghost says, he says, let me give you, let me give you the grim news of what it means not to get off this barren plane. If you don't submit to something that will get you off this barren plane, here's what's going to happen. Let me disclose the gifts reserved for age to set a crown upon your lifetime's effort. First, the cold friction of expiring sense without enchantment, offering no promise but bitter tastelessness of shadow fruit as body and soul begin to fall asunder. If you don't submit to that Pentecostal fire, that transformation, here's a catalog of what 
what the result is. The conscious impotence of rage at human folly and the laceration of laughter at what ceases to amuse. And last, the rending pain of reenactment of all that you have done and been. The shame of motives late revealed and the awareness of things ill done and done to others' harms which once you took for exercise of virtue. Then, in other words, you come to see what was really happening in your life. Then fool's approval stings and honor stains. From wrong to wrong, the exasperated spirit proceeds. Now that's, that's what he says it's going to be like unless you can find a way out of it. Unless, restored by that refining fire, where you must move and measure like a dancer. That's the last line from this compound spirit. All of this, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, unless, restored by that refining fire, where you must move and measure like a dancer. Not the dance of the hands brushing off the, the spirit, but moving in a dance. And, and then Elliot concludes by saying, the day was breaking. In the disfigured street, he left me with a kind of valediction and faded on the blowing of the horn. This is very odd. Uh, we're not here to study Elliot. We're here to study Dante. But faded on the blowing of the horn is a pretty obvious echo of the disappearance of, Ham of the ghost of Hamlet's father. He faded on the, crowing of, uh, the crowing of a cock. And Elliot says the day was breaking. Why does he use horn? Two reasons, I think. The siren of the air raid the air raid's over. The night is over. The lights are no longer a liability. Uh, and the blast says we can relax. I think a deeper meaning, though, that he chose horn over the crowing of a cock. And that is, this may seem far-fetched, but halfway through the Aeneid, Aeneas loses his nerve. He can't figure out why he should bother proceeding on, sacrificing happiness in his life for some destiny. Dutiful Aeneas, pious Aeneas, self-sacrificing Aeneas. He can't figure out why he should bother. And perhaps Virgil's having some problems with the poem. One doesn't know. Aeneas goes into the underworld to consult the spirit of his dead father. The one who is already dead. That's what Dante is consulting here, is the spirit of Brunetto Latini. And his father says, let me show you, my boy, the greatness that will be Rome. And he gives him a little, a little tour of the, of the historical gallery of, of Roman greatness. Unfortunately, he picks out some of the people that he gives a tour of are questionable. But anyway, he's trying to, he's trying to say, hey, it's okay. you, you must continue because look at all this greatness 
Now, of course, Virgil's writing this poem for Augustus, so he has to be very careful about how he does it. But here's what he does at the end of the sixth book of the Aeneid, right dead center in the middle of the Aeneid. After Anchises, who's the father of Aeneas, tells him that marvelous story. This is the opposite of what Dante gets, you see. Dante gets a good look at the, at the old man of Crete. That's history. Gets a good look at Renato Latini. That's culture. I'm not going to try to pump you up by giving you some rendition of the future that's going to keep you going. But not so the, the Aeneid. The Aeneid's before Christ. It's, it was harder to figure out a way. It was before people discovered the dying and rising universe in a way. Although I think Virgil discovered it. Anyway. Anchises tells him how great it's going to be and then the poem says, And when Father Anchises has shown his son each scene and fired his soul with love of coming glory, then he tells Aeneas of the wars he must still wage and so on and so forth. There are two gates of sleep. The one is said to be of horn. Through it, an easy exit is given to true shades. The other is made of polished ivory, perfect, glittering, but through that way the spirits send false dreams into the world above. And here Anchises, when he is done with words, accompanies the Sibyl and his son together, and sends them through the gate of ivory, the gate of false dreams. The gate of false dreams is the story that says, it's going to be a glorious future, my boy. So keep going. And it's that very thing that robs the person of the dark night of the soul. Eckhart says, I must live without motives. must go through the, the purifying fire to get, all, get rid of all that. And so it is the gate, the ivory gate of false dreams that Aeneas comes to. But Eliot comes faded on the blowing of the horn. I think that is an oblique reference to the fact that he is not going to revive things with illusions. This is the realm of truth.